You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about artificial intelligence and its use in pediatrics. Joining me, I have two experts to discuss this topic. First, Dr. Bimal Desai, who's an assistant vice president and chief health informatics officer at CHOP and one of my favorite attendings from my time as a resident at CHOP. So welcome, Dr. Desai. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thanks for being here. And also joining us is Dr. Kevin Johnson, who is a professor of biostatistics, epidemiology, and informatics and pediatrics at Perlman School of Medicine, professor of computer and information science and bioengineering in the School of Engineering and Applied Science, and professor of science communication at the Annenberg School for Communication. Very busy, so thank you for sharing your time with us, and welcome, Dr. Johnson. Well, Katie, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Well, I've never done this before, but I thought, what better time than an episode about artificial intelligence than to ask ChatGPT to write some interview questions for me? So I asked ChatGPT what interview questions I should use on a podcast about artificial intelligence and pediatrics. And the questions it came up with were actually really good. And so I'll be using some of those as well as my own questions on this topic. And let's just see if you two experts and listeners can spot the difference. So my first question for you is just to think about where we are with AI right now. How is it being utilized in pediatrics and what's our current state? Yes, I would say that today we have a number of both research and operational examples of how AI are being used in pediatrics. In the research space, I think one of the major areas of interest is to try to understand if we can use algorithms to identify which children are at risk of deterioration. For example, can we predict sepsis or can we predict bad outcomes following heart disease? And then in the operational space, we're looking at ways to use artificial intelligence to streamline patient care, and to improve the timeliness in how we respond to patient concerns. Those are great examples of how we're doing that kind of globally in pediatrics. I'm also wondering if you can give some specific things that we're already doing at CHOP. We definitely have investigators in the research space who are looking at ways to detect disease sooner and deterioration, for example, in neonatology, in the cardiac center, in our Department of Biomedical and Health Informatics. I'm also excited about two specific clinical pilots that we're doing. The first is to try to automate how clinicians can write their notes during clinical encounters by having an ambient scribe that listens to the interaction between the patient and the provider. And the second one is meant to improve the efficiency of how we respond to inquiries by patients through our portal. So if you ask a question of your physician or your provider through the MyChop portal, the provider, when they log into the system, will see a draft reply already teed up for them. And this would allow them to potentially save a little bit of time in crafting response to you. Those are fascinating examples. So it sounds like AI can potentially help us predict diseases or conditions and therefore maybe even help us intervene earlier and improve patient outcomes. Is that true? Is that what we're seeing? Absolutely. 
you know, it's a broad term. So I think from the standpoint of all of the ways we think about AI, there's the predictive work, there's the prognostic work, which is actually being able to say something about the direction care is likely to go or patient's outcomes are likely to proceed. And then there's generative functions. So we've been doing a lot of that work, as BML just said. And I think some of the best examples for predictive work right now are in precision medicine, a work that really started in the adult world in the mid-early 2004-05 period. So it's been going on for quite some time. Where we see a lot of that is in the undiagnosed disease network in children, where so many patients come in where they actually have a lot of information in the chart, but that chart needs to be sort of mined at scale and compared with other patients who have other information in their charts. There's a technique that was developed by a colleague of ours, Lisa Basterach at Vanderbilt, called the Phenotype Risk Score, and that's really been invaluable to the Undiagnosed Disease Network and a few of the different sites. Another person who's doing a lot of work in this space is John Pestian at Cincinnati, and there are a lot of others. That's really fascinating because, as you said, these charts can be quite complex and rich. And when diseases are rare, there may be a patient who presents, for example, like you said, maybe at Vanderbilt and another one at Cincinnati. And this is a way that we can potentially integrate some of that and find patterns across institutions. So that's that's a really cool application. Exactly. And, and I'll tell you, it's not just in the sort of classic ways we think about prediction. Expect augmented pediatric imaging, radiology, and chatbots to be commonplace in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's going to clearly impact specialties that rely on that type of information like dermatology, ophthalmology, syndrome identification. I still remember having to bring in an expert and say, you know, point me to a series of textbooks, but also experts in the field who are no longer with us like Dr. Tunnison. I think we're going to have technologies that we can now use where we use ID, a Google-type camera situation, where we actually can figure out a syndrome. And then other specialties will be coming along pretty quickly, including general pediatrics. So that leads me to my next question, which are there ethical considerations surrounding the use of AI in pediatrics, such as using decision-making algorithms for patient care? And are there potential biases that might arise from an AI system? Well, we're already seeing an enormous amount of ethical considerations, and I'll just mention a few. And there have been some great papers, or maybe not so great papers, impactful papers, talking about real biases that have happened in AI. Um, Zayed Obermeyer, who is an AI researcher at Berkeley, wrote a paper that was in Science in, I think, 2019, talking about the fact that biases were resulting in discrimination between patients of color and majority patients related to risk profiling that was done in a biased way. So this whole idea of responsible AI development and deployment are going to be even more important in minors who can become dependent on it. The data are biased. We already know that. We have to think about ways to get patients to be included so that the data can be less biased. We know that only about 5% of brown and black patients are engaged in clinical trials compared to what they should be based on representation in the populace. And we're seeing this kind of work around discriminatory outcomes becoming a little bit more commonplace. The other big issue is algorithm explainability, because to the extent that people might want to know why a particular therapy or diagnosis is being recommended, 
it's going to be very difficult with current technology to explain that. Neural networks essentially have hidden layers, and those hidden layers are even hidden to the technology itself in terms of the ability to know what's driving a particular decision. Then there are big issues with privacy and security. I know we're going to talk a lot about that. But things that should concern us that we see today that are only going to get worse include targeted advertising and how to control that, developing user interfaces for children that adequately explain information or use or recognize issues of literacy and numeracy. And all of those are solvable, but it really needs to be intentional. And then my favorite concern from an ethical perspective is prompt engineering. Early on, when OpenAI came out, they disclosed that there were ways in which their safeguards could be circumvented by people who do clever prompt engineering. Similarly, a lot of the results that we get that are high-quality results, like the ones you got to ask these questions, <laughs> require typically iterative engineering. You can imagine how wrong the response could be if you either don't have the language skills necessary to write a good prompt, or worse, if you have the time to write a bad prompt. Mm -hmm. So these are all things we have to be paying attention to. Fascinating. There's definitely a lot of content there, which makes me even more grateful for all the informaticists at CHOP who are thinking about this, because we will have a lot to consider as we apply this in our pediatric patient population. Right. Now, one of the issues that you touched on, which I think we should definitely talk about more, is data privacy and security, which we know are critical concerns in healthcare. So how do AI technologies address these concerns so that we can protect our sensitive patient information? Yeah, that's a tricky question, Katie. And um, what I can say is since November of 2022, which is when ChatGPT was first released, there has been a lot of enthusiasm for trying to use these large language models to help out clinicians in routine workflows, whether this is, for example, generating a letter of medical necessity for your insurance company or coming up with a differential diagnosis for a child who has lots of different signs or symptoms or lab findings, the truth is that all of those things in some way would include a disclosure of patient information if the physician is doing that directly within the public version of ChatGPT that's hosted on the OpenAI website. So one of the first things that we did as soon as these tools were released was that we developed and we released institutional guidance that basically says that you cannot, as an organization, we do not endorse and we don't support the use of OpenAI's version of ChatGPT for these kinds of clinical queries because you're potentially disclosing identifiable patient information to this third-party website, which you know CHOP doesn't have any control over. Right. I think since then, we've also learned that there are potential risks for disclosing de-identified protected health information on platforms like that because the truth is that if your child's signs and symptoms and lab tests are sufficiently uncommon that they are theoretically re-identifiable. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to actually strengthen this policy and um, basically say, look, whether it's de-identified or not, you should not be putting in any patient information onto public instances of a large language model like OpenAI, ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. So then that begs the question, well, what's the alternative? And the alternative is that we have to stand up private instances of these large language models. And in fact, we're partnering with some of our technology vendors and we hope that in the next few months, we'll actually be able to release something that we're internally calling CHOP GPT, which would be a HIPAA-protected private instance of a large language model that would then permit clinicians to do these kinds of 
queries. Mm, that's fascinating. I also love the name Chop GPT, but I think that that is great because, as you said, there are a lot of benefits to using this technology. We just want to do it safely. So, on that note, recently President Biden signed an executive order to make AI companies more accountable and transparent, including recommendations for content authentication and watermarking so that people can see when a piece of content has been created by AI. How do you think this applies to pediatrics? I'm wondering, should we be mindful about telling patients and families when content is generated by AI or when AI has been used in patient care? So for example, if I used CHOP GPT, should I then just close to a patient and their family that I use that in terms of coming up with a diagnosis? Or when I'm getting those texts through my MyChop account as a parent of CHOP patients and it's interacting with me as if it was a person, should I be made aware that I am not actually talking to a person? I think a lot of what Biden is trying to do allows us to bring out into the open, right? Mm -hmm. So no question about the fact that what this executive order is really trying to do is to create safeguards and to at least let people know that we're not standing on the sidelines, to use a football metaphor or a soccer metaphor, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. I think it's just basically saying there are issues here. Mm -hmm. And there had been other shots over the bow, if you will, from people who are within the AI space that said, we need some guidance or we at least need someone else to weigh in other than a bunch of companies to say we are concerned. So this was really important for President Biden to do. There's also a group of us on the National Academy of Medicine. I'm in this group which are developing a book called the AI Code of Conduct, which is going to be like a learning health system to think about as AI advances, what does a proper use of AI and improper use of AI look like and how can we recognize and mitigate challenges. But I think what you've brought up as some of the examples are the ones that we as a community have to wrestle with pretty quickly, which is there's no question that generative AI does things that are time savers for humans. Mm -hmm. The question then is, is it okay if we let people know? And I think the answer right now is in the absence of any other guidance of absolutely, we should let people know. I think there's been a little bit of information in JAMA, people talking about ways in which other providers are putting messages in their portals in the adult space to say things like, you know, when I'm really available, when I'm not really available, when this might actually get deferred to someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of time before somebody writes the editorial that you just wrote in your head, Katie, which is, my patients are going to know that I'm responding when I can, but it's possible that their timely response is coming from a generative AI tool that I have placed in my stead until I can get to certain things. Right. Or instead of me getting to certain things. I think that's just where we are going to be, and we're going to have to think internally about how that works. And we need, Bimal and I both know that this is coming, because at the EPIC user group meeting this year, they announced many tools that are going to make all of our providers extremely excited. But the point is that this is all kind of in this area that I was talking about before, about responsible AI. And I think what President Biden and the team in this 100-pager are trying to do is there is a code and there is a way in which we must be responsible with this new technology. Now, you mentioned there are things that we need to think about in the long term. And then there are things that we need to act on now. And what I'm thinking about in terms of acting now as a primary care pediatrician is that many of my patients use AI in their daily lives. And in primary care, we give a lot of anticipatory guidance about tons of safety things, bike helmets, seatbelts, guns, sunscreen. 
what should I be saying about AI to my patients and how am I bringing this up? So first of all, Katie, I am absolutely confident that GPT did not write either of these last two questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It did not. (laughs) Just, you know, it couldn't have written the President Biden one because GPT is only trained to about 2022. So it wouldn't know that. (laughs) Um, And then this other one's just way too good. Um, Okay, you caught me. You caught me. Thank you. (laughs) So I think this is an amazingly astute observation that one of the roles we should be playing is thinking about how we can provide anticipatory guidance. And I'm going to tell BMAL, this is definitely something we have to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's really, really tricky. Because as the tech is getting more pervasive, when you have things like the various home voice assistants, Amazon, Google, and Apple make, our kids right. are growing up with more access to information, but also misinformation, mm-hmm. things that may have been right at some time that are wrong now, or things that were never correct, or disinformation, things that were actually placed in their space, basically to induce harm. So there are countless examples of how AI could shape you know, the opinions and their behaviors at a formative stage in their lives. Um, a really simple example we've all probably seen is if you go to Dali or to Midjourney and ask it to draw a doctor, it's probably going to be a draw a white male. Mm-hmm. If you ask it to write a bedtime story, and I did this recently about a child who wants to be a ballet dancer, the dancer will be female, and likely everybody in the ballet space will be female. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to unpack here, and we need to. MIT wrote a piece that was in their. I think it's their MIT newsletter or headlines, and they listed six areas where we should be doing anticipatory work with children. And there were a couple that I remembered right off the bat, which I thought were just brilliant to write and brilliant for us to be saying to children who are old enough to understand directly what we're saying. But maybe parents can know these things too. Number one, AI is not your friend. Mm-hmm. So even though you might have a long conversation with these technologies, and even though they might offer you suggestions or tell you about packages, they are not doing anything necessarily in your best interest that is creative without being asked to do so. Two is that all of these technologies are designed to get you hooked. AI is going to be even better at that than before, so we're going to need to set limits. And then the third is not to forget that AI is actually good at some things, like definitions, translating language, tutoring, helping with writing. And we should make sure parents know that there's going to be a role, even today, for AI. You know, AI could generate the bedtime story kids want, even without parents asking for it. I think Alexa already does that. That's great. There's a lot to think about there. And I think, as you mentioned, we already have some anticipatory guidance that we give about interactions with social media and other online media and how we have our children engage with those things. And this might just be looped into that discussion. And uh, it may even become, as you said, even more present in our lives. So something we need to keep talking about. I'm glad that there are researchers already publishing on this too. So as we look towards the future and AI and pediatrics continues to evolve, what are some of the future trends or developments that you foresee? This is probably the most exciting part (laughs) for me is to try to project what the future of pediatric care delivery will look like, augmented through artificial intelligence and large language models. And the one thing to understand is that today, when we care for patients, there are a lot of repetitive tasks that patients have to do, that our clinicians have to do, that nurses, that people in the revenue cycle and on the back end have to do all day long. 
And to me, one of the most promising aspects of artificial intelligence is the ability to simplify all of that work. In fact, we have two pilots that we're engaging in today, live at CHOP. The first is the ability to at least generate a draft response to an inquiry that a patient might send through our MyCHOP patient portal, so that when the physician first opens that message, they see already teed up for them a response to the question that the family asked. And this could, you know, incrementally shave 20, 30 seconds off their day, and you multiply that by the number of MyChart messages that our providers complete per day, and that's many hundreds of hours Mm -hmm. uh, of potential time savings. The second example, and probably one of my favorite use cases, is a lot of patients have observed that they don't love the experience of clinical care today, because oftentimes it involves a physician who's sitting at a computer and maybe typing while the family is trying to talk about uh, an important medical concern. And the computer is a distraction. It inserts itself in a place where it doesn't belong. Today, one of the tools that we're piloting allows you to place your smartphone on the table, turn on a ambient listening scribe that can actively listen to both the provider and the patient communicate with each other. It's recording that, sending it to the cloud, and automatically generating a clinical note so that by the end of the encounter, the physician's documentation is already done. And to me, that's that's an, an amazing example of where we should be using artificial intelligence and large language models to improve how we deliver care, to restore face-to-face time between patients and providers. If I look at how we can potentially use these models throughout healthcare, all those things that I mentioned, we can simplify how we explain bills to family. We can automatically translate dense medical jargon into more explainable more common terms that other people would understand outside of medicine, we could potentially even translate it to other languages. So if English is not your preferred language, and now someone's given you a discharge summary with lots of instructions that are in English, maybe we can have a large language model take a first pass at translating this into your preferred language. For now, all of our examples involve having a human in the middle. We don't yet endorse having these AI models, for the most part, provide responses directly to patients. But that's what we have to become familiar with, is to understand where there's risk, where the human needs to be in the middle, and where it's it's uh, appropriate for the, the computer to do its thing. On the back end, and I think I hinted at this earlier, we're going to see improvements in how things are, are done more efficiently, specifically on the revenue cycle and the coding and abstraction billing side, too, to try to eliminate a lot of the unnecessary human effort that it takes today and to really um, help people perform better at their roles. Well, I really like the sound of that. Anything that helps improve efficiency and give back time to clinicians as well as time to their patients is great. So for those who are listening and want to learn more on this topic, what resources would you recommend about learning about AI in pediatrics and just staying informed about some of these developments that you're talking about? Well, you know, there's a lot. And for the listeners who are directly involved with healthcare, it's important to note that JAMA has taken a really strong interest in this area, and they're producing you know, regular JAMA articles, both on JAMA Open and through podcasts. I'm going to come back to the podcast in a second. JAMA Pediatrics just completed a whole call for papers on AI applied to pediatrics care, and I'm really excited about what they're going to produce. But it's also important to note that there were probably patients who listened to these things too. Mm -hmm. And I think for patients, the key thing maybe are the podcasts where almost everybody tries to get podcasts to a level as you've done, Katie, here, where everybody can understand it. So there are many of those. JAMA does have an entire set 
of podcasts that are showing up both in their podcast forum and on the web. So I just recently did one on AI and medicine, and there's a few others. Mike, uh, Michael Howell from Google just did one as well from JAMA. And then finally, this podcast that we're on now, as well as the one I do called Informatics in the Round, are obviously featuring AI. Next year, so all of 2024, Informatics in the Round is going to be focusing on AI and medicine. We plan to have plenty of people talking about AI and pediatrics. I would say the most important thing for us to say about resources is where people shouldn't go. <laughs> so at this point, I would say, beware of the socials. Mm -hmm. um, I normally wouldn't say it so emphatically, but in this case, I think there's ample evidence that information and misinformation look so much alike that no one's going to really know what they're seeing. More importantly, their ability to get to the things that are really going to matter is going to be thwarted by the other purposes of social media, which are ads and mm -hmm. hooks and retention, right? right? So it's a lot like the early days of the internet, where we always taught residents that the safe URLs ended in .gov or .edu, mm -hmm. and that they should go to the trustworthy resources that they know have a clear mission to get new information, and not necessarily go to the easy resources, because they may have very specific reasons why they're so easy. I always remind everybody now that when you do a Google search, to the left, there is some information about the likely source or content. It'll say ad or sponsored or something else. Right. They need to scroll past all that right. and just get down to the links that actually look like they're sources that they should trust. Those are great tips. I love that. So we've covered a lot of ground, and there's obviously a lot more that we could talk about on this topic. So thanks for pointing us to some of those resources. But I'd love to wrap up with your top takeaways on this topic. And if you could each give me one, that would be great. I think my takeaway is that we need to give it time. It's been less than a year since some of these large-scale language models have been introduced and for public consumption, so to speak. And I think what we've learned is there's a lot that we have to be worried about a lot of which we mentioned during this podcast. And there's also a lot of fascinating ways that we can use these to improve care delivery. And it will take a little bit of time for us to sort out what it's good at and what it's not good at. The biggest critique I've heard so far is that the responses or the output of a lot of these language models tends to be sort of general and boring. And guess what? There's a lot of general and boring things that we do in healthcare, and it's <laughs> worth trying to automate those to streamline how we provide care for patients. And that would allow our human providers to actually do their jobs better. So give it time. Wait for health systems like CHOP and others to refine and improve uh, how we use these tools. And um, I'm looking forward to the future. I would add, number one, to our clinical audience, stay informed. You know, everybody else expects us to be really good at this and to know what the right thing is to do. And the way that we get that is to continue to read and to get beyond the hype and the doom but also the things that are more unbiased that can talk about potential for good and harm. And then for the lay audience, I would also say stay aware and get involved because like the internet, this is an opportunity to really forge a new way that our society is going to operate globally. And I think people who sort of sit idly by are going to be doing nothing but complaining. <laughs> so <laughs> please be a part of this and try to help figure out what's right, what's wrong, and how we make the world a better place because of it. 
Well, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. We're going to give it time, stay informed, stay aware, and get involved. Thank you, Dr. Desai and Johnson, for sharing all of this with us today and for all of the work you're doing for us at CHOP and Penn and elsewhere to really be on the forefront and do all those things that you said. You're giving it time. You're helping us stay informed and aware and involved, and we appreciate that. So thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Katie. This was a great discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 